All right, thanks guys, and good morning everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. It's good to see you all. Thanks for being here today. Especially welcome you if you're uh, visiting today for the first time or it's just been a while. It's good to have you. Good to have you here and good to have you back. Um, we are in a series right now in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you, are, uh, if you have a Bible with you or a phone app, go ahead and turn there. We're in chapter 4 today. I'll get to that uh, in just a second. But uh, we'll be in this series through early March, it looks like right now. A couple of breaks for Christmas time, but otherwise we're going to uh, head right through it basically. Uh, it's a great letter. Uh, if you've read it before, uh, hope that you've enjoyed it. It's also kind of hard to get through. It's, uh, Paul shows us his heart in kind of unique ways in this letter that he, that he doesn't uh, in other letters. He's always, he always shows his heart, but not quite in this way uh, where he just discloses uh, his sufferings for the people of God in kind of a unique way over and over and over again. It kind of is as an apologetic and a defense for what Christian life, but especially Christian leadership, uh, maybe should look like, but uh, maybe the better word is uh, can or does a lot. It's, he normalizes it. We'll talk more about that today. But uh, just in general, if you're new to the Bible or, or new to this, uh, this uh, part of the, of the scriptures, uh, maybe, the letters, remember, are letters ultimately from God to us. So uh, Paul was a guy who lived uh, just, um, well, during the time of Christ, but then right after that, he was saved and he planted churches around the area. Corinth was a Greco-Roman port city, so I uh, think like modern-day Greece. It's the region of Achaia uh, back in the day. But he's writing letters to them to just talk about the gospel and encourage Christians there. Uh, but they really become letters for us, uh, to us from God. Uh, they're, they're really penned by the Spirit. Actually, Paul talks in those terms in the early parts of chapter 3, how uh, the, this idea of letters is a spiritual idea, actually. So there's movements in the Bible from uh, the, the stone-cold tablets of law to love letters written by the blood of Jesus and how uh, we have more access now because of what he's done. So more on that later, uh, too. But just uh, the, the general invitation there is to hear the voice of God call out to you when we read uh, in not just something historical and, and contextual. Uh, but let's pick up in chapter 4, and we'll look at uh, the theme of jars of clay today from uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. Picking up in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh." So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All right. Just a wonderful passage of Scripture. Some of you guys might be familiar with this. I want to make a couple of broad, sweeping uh, observations about it before we dive into some more details. But these are, it uh, depends on your background, of course, and if you've read this before, but these are some of the more biblically famous words on the nature of suffering 
in the Christian life and in Christian ministry as well. So remember that when we read these letters, in some sense, Paul is just talking about himself as a leader and his associates like Timothy and Titus when he says the we. Sometimes he's talking about the more like, you know, comprehensive we as though all Christians are going to experience what he did. Knowing which it is, it just gets kind of hard sometimes and I think it's good to kind of take it from, you know, uh, both angles, like to look at it from the more comprehensive, but then also to step back and say, Paul as a leader is especially experiencing this. Um, but in, in any case, we'll start from the former though and talk about this as though this is indicative of Christian living. This is normative. And uh, so, but to go back, even though, even if you've never read this book before, it's possible you've heard the term jars of clay. Uh, some translations say earthen vessels, but it's the same thing. It, it's just this idea of common or not glamorous, or like, think in modern terms, like think like a worn out, scratched Tupperware, you know, that's just kind of like foggy because it's been scratched so much. And then in that is this priceless treasure. And it might be like, that's just kind of weird, right? That's sort of odd. You wouldn't expect to see that container for a treasure. And for Paul, he's been speaking in these same terms the whole book. This is the first time he's used this metaphor, but it's the same thing. Throughout the whole book, over and over, he's been saying from different angles, that he is the jar of clay. Again, you could say we as Christians, but he's saying he is the jar of clay and Jesus is the treasure. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the treasure or this New Testament ministry, remember from chapter three, that he's given is the treasure. And so before we get into some of the details and the deeper understanding of kind of the nitty gritty of that and and what that means, the beautiful tension that, that there is in that imagery, when you just kind of step back and read this, almost like you would maybe a psalm, where you can sort of empathize and say, oh, the psalmist is going through what, you know, what I go through. I can see my story in that. You might say that here too, right? We all have different backgrounds and even present day experiences. Some of you are greatly suffering. You feel, you feel the words that Paul is feeling, right? Some of you don't. And that's okay. We'll talk about how it's not meant to be a perfect example of all of our lives every day. But in general, it kind of is, right? As 2020 rages on, you might hear that and you might, some parts of this passage, and you might think, that's my life right now. That's exactly what I'm going through. I, I'm, cr- I'm crushed, I'm perplexed, I'm confused. And one of the messages of 2 Corinthians 4 is that Paul's trying to normalize this and help the Corinthians know. Corinthians, this, this faction of the church that was kind of skeptical of how could this be normative for Christian living, he's trying to, to apologetically defend that kind of by way of his life and by way of, of, of the gospel. So he's saying things like, being people who wait on God is normative. Who wait on Jesus' second coming, that's, that's a normative thing. Who yearn for eternal life, that is normative. Like that last song we sang, who, who pray, Jesus, hasten your coming and do away with these interposing days. Pull it up like a room darkening shade. Let it snap up into a roll so we can see fully and clearly and enter into glory. That's normative to want that so much that it's like hard to breathe or that we can't even pray. We can just groan. That's normal for Christians to have days, if not long seasons of that in life, especially when when we're afflicted. It's also normal to feel a tension then between the wasting away of the outer and the old self and the renewal of the inner self. That's that's a normative thing uh, because it's indicative of what's true about us now. We're old and new, we're sinner and saints, we're filthy and cleansed. Somehow they go together because we're saved by grace, not by our works. So we can have like both sort of transposed over each other and that's who we are, right? That's how the Bible talks. 
It's also normative to have a tension between the burdens of life and Peter, I think Peter was praying this second ago, the burdens of life and the hope of, a, hope of it all being brought to an end, all the burdens being brought to an end. It's, it's, that's normative too, just as to be human, right? But especially, especially Christian. Verse 17 <clears throat> says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so again, if you're afflicted, if I'm afflicted, if we're afflicted, this is a passage for us. Uh, eternal perspective matters. It, it helps to take the focus off the affliction and to put it onto our future, right? And on, onto Christ. It helps us endure. It helps Christians to be resilient. Eternal perspective does. And again, to hold on to Jesus for dear life, which is always, always a good thing, right? If something comes into our life, and it makes you hold on to Jesus for dear life and to wait on him, to pray big prayers, to just yearn with that last song for the interposing days to be rolled up uh, like a scroll. Um, that is the mark of the redeemed. That's what it looks like. Be, in other words, it would be weird to not have that, right? It would be kind of odd to not have that experience as, as a Christian, to not have this deep groaning and yearning for things to be, to be made new. An eternal perspective really helps, and Paul is basically saying that. He's, here, he's just saying that we're being prepared for a glory that's beyond comparison. It's, it's not like you can take your sufferings and the future when Jesus comes back. It's like, yeah, it's like a one here and a, and a ten here. He says you cannot quantify the comparison. Isn't that amazing? It's light compared to the heaviness of salvation. Light compared to the heaviness of, of glory when we can see God's face and know who made us, and know who loves us more than anybody else has ever loved us and ever will in the universe. Like, you cannot even compare it. And to know that that's coming, it just puts a little more of a check, doesn't it, onto our suffering, a little more of a check onto our waiting, a little more of a check onto our perplexities in life when the questions are more than the answers, and, um, and it gives us that forward-looking nature to it. But I like the idea of preparing. I, I was thinking uh, this past week with this passage personally that on a human level, um, and I'm, I'm guessing you guys can experience this as well or understand this, but some of the pains that Aletha and I went through early in our marriage, like with, with miscarriages, multiple miscarriages, or just other things, like, or other things in my life, like personally with sicknesses, like when I look back on them, like now, when you're not experiencing them, you don't feel them as much right? Like when you've been really, really sick and suffering, looking back might grieve you and it might make you weep afresh or it might make you just, oh, that was terrible. I don't like to think about it. At the same time, when you're not in it, you've kind of moved on, right? You guys ever had this experience before? Um, it's, almost not, it's almost possible not to have it, right? Because you're, you lit, we're ten, we tend to be people of the present. So I feel like that's a good example of how glory will be, where when Jesus comes back, we'll just have this increasing forgetfulness about the former light afflictions. And we won't remember them increasingly into the future and, and into glory. And so in that way, I think we're being prepared. We're being prepared by way of suffering unto clinging to Jesus, suffering unto wanting something more, suffering unto wanting the burdens to end. And that posture, you know, towards suffering and towards what we're going through and towards God and towards Jesus and towards our future is just the mark of the redeemed. It's the mark of being, being saved. This is the part of history we live in between uh, the times, essentially. All right? But here, with that said, though, kind of moving on, in verse 7, so 
this passage, though, is not just about the what of affliction. It's clearly about the why. So, why, in other words, why is Paul suffering or why is he weak? We've been talking about this in this series over and over again. But this passage, this verse actually, gets at the so what more clearly than probably any other verse in the whole book. And there are many that do, but this might take the cake. And that is to show that the surpassing power, the power of salvation, belongs to God like a possession and not to us. Isn't that great? We have this treasure in jars of clay, so our fragility, our weakness, like the gospel is housed in our weakness, right? Or, or we get sick or we suffer, we, we have difficulties to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul's a man of suffering, right? We, we've been talking about this. He lists it out later in this book. He suffered more than arguably anybody in this room. And there's a reason for that because he's especially a picture of Christ to us as we read these letters and narratives. But look at just the clear so what. Paul is weak to show where the surpassing power comes from. And at this point in the book, this should start to be becoming old hat. Suffering exists to show others and us, others watching, but us, the principle of grace. If it was the other way around, if we were vessels of gold rather than clay, it would communicate that the power of salvation belonged to gold us, right? And it doesn't. And so God loves us too much to send the wrong message about the most important thing in the universe. And so we have this treasure not in jars of gold or chalices of gold, but in just common scratched Tupperware, in jars of clay that are easily discardable, just very, very common. This is also a big part of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians when he said this, uh, talking about Christians and who God chose to be saved, how he is moving towards people who were like, tupper, like the scratch Tupperware, like jars of clay. He says there, God shows the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, and here's again the big so what, so that no one may boast before him. So whether you think of like the idea of choosing, God, as it says here, God choosing or God loving or God showing no partiality, as James 1 says, or Jesus saying the last will be first, or again, just the basic principle of being saved by the grace of God, not by our works of morality or works of righteousness. They're all saying the same thing. And one of the reasons that God is working this way in the world and shaping the gospel into this grace not works concept is so that God will get bigger and we would get lesser. And that's a good thing. Our happiness is at stake in that. Because when we deify ourselves, we become pricks. We become stuck up. We become hateful and comparative and uh, just flat out arrogant. No, no one, whether it's us or others, it's, it's, it destroys relationships, not men's. Arrogance does, right? So God, for God to get bigger and us lesser is a way to mend the heart of sin, which is pride the heart of sin, which is self-deification. And so here you see it in his first letter to the, to the church, in his second letter to the church, Paul keeps coming back and saying, this is why, church, look around. Not all of us look like gold jars. Many of us are like jars of clay. And God is not showing partiality. He's just loving people based on his love. Not on what you do. Not on, what you, on your performance or what you have to give. And for, for weak and weary and burdened sinners slash 
people who suffer. That's really good news, really good news. Another why to the what is in verse 10, where Paul says, we carry around in the body the death of Jesus. This is a wonderful loaded phrase here. But Paul is saying, we as leaders, we're carrying around in our physical bodies, not just suffering, but the death of Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? The death of Jesus, even though he's not actively dying there, at this point he's been raised, he's ascended, he's seated next to his father, but there's a, there's a sense to which he's linking his death or his suffering with the death of Jesus as if he's typifying it and replaying it. This has been a big theme uh, in, in the book. Also in verse 12 when he says, death is at work in us, but life in you. And again, from verse 10, well, whose death is he talking about? Jesus' death, right? Jesus' death is at work being replayed before you like a play and it, it's, it is that way so that life would be at work in you. We're suffering, you're not. We're uncomfortable, you're comfortable. We're taking bullets so that you can thrive. That's what Paul is saying. And so uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.10 then is a good kind of counterpart verse to this, but it just says simply the same thing, right? But Jesus died for us that we may live. That's the gospel. That's what the good news of the Bible is. Jesus died for us. He gave his body for us that we wouldn't die ultimately. Remember what he says to Martha in, in, in John 11? All who believe in me, even though he dies, he will never die. Even though he dies, yet shall he live. Kind of that tension of, yes, we're all on our way to the grave, but at the same time, our, our future is so set and the resurrection is so secure that it's almost like we're never going to experience death at the same time. It's an exchange. Jesus died for us that we may live. Paul's saying, I'm dying for you that you may live. Now, is Paul putting himself in the place of Jesus? No. But he's saying, I resemble him. Remember that, that uh, metaphor from chapter 2 when he says, we are the aroma of the death of Jesus Christ or the aroma of life? When you are the aroma of something, you're not the thing, right? The aroma and the thing giving out the aroma are different things. The smell and the thing giving out the smell is the diff are different things, right? He's saying, I'm just the aroma, but they are inextricably connected. So that when you see me kind of in a mini way die for you, you're seeing a picture of, of your Savior. All right, so here, here's the thing. We've said this in this series before. We've got to beat this drum, though, over and over again because the Bible does. Really simple but important word for all of us, I'd say, who are Christians, but especially if you are a leader here at this church or going to be an, or another church, uh, this is especially a word for, for leader types. But, but again, for all of us, here, here's the word. Here's what this means. You don't belong to yourself. Your life is not your own. You are a part of a greater story. And, and I'm going to dial it up even more. You exist. This is why you exist as a Christian. You exist to carry around in your body the gospel. To carry around in your body in the day-to-day -day, the death of Jesus in big or small ways for the sake of others' life. You exist to lose so others might win. And, and in leadership especially, uh, leadership is just in a kind of a classic, basic definitional sense, but especially in the Bible, leadership is a call to die. Marriage is a call to die. A lot of things are calls to die. 
the leadership is a call to die for the sake of those you, you lead. If you're not willing to do that, you probably shouldn't be a leader. It's not a badge of honor where everyone does work for you and you sit in a comfortable office chair all day. Like, leadership is like foot washing. It's servant-heartedness. It's, it's putting others before you. It's training others so they get better at you than the thing that you're leading at, that you're leading at or, or over. That's what leadership uh, is. And in a Christian sense, then, we add that Jesus side to it, right? We say, we die, we take bullets, we suffer, we lose sleep, we take spiritual attack. And, and that's just the reality. And, and Paul's saying this. And Paul's saying, some of that dying, though, will be out of your control. But, but either way, look at verse 12. Look at what it's saying. It, it is saying, um, I mean, essentially what verse 12 is, you guys, verse 12 is church life in a verse. That's church life. Karen Ron and our bodies, and I'm applying this to all Christians now, not just leaders, um, but this is a great question. This is something to, to press into. Karen Ron, in your body, the death of Jesus for the sake of others' life. And then thinking every day, how can that look? Or how could that look? How can I pray unto that end? How can I suffer a little bit for the sake of someone else that they might thrive spiritually, whether in physical or spiritual or both ways? Look at what he's saying. Look at these both, both these look at these verses play off each other, right? We have opportunities to express and demonstrate the gospel. This is why we exist, and this is the end to which we serve and uh, and and pray. And that leads to this next piece, which is verse fifteen. Uh, I love this verse. Paul says, "For it is all for your sake." So notice how he he cares for the health of the church and all of this even as they criticize him. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So extending and increasing. Extending grace, increasing uh, thanksgiving. And, and what you see in this verse is another one of Paul's very helpful if-thens or so-that's, right? And, and that is grace, the grace of God, the undeserved favor, the merit we've been given, through Jesus' death and resurrection, that kind of grace, as that extends to more people, the reason is so that it may increase thanksgiving uh, to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, different one of Paul's letters, but same topic. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And, and I put both these up here so that you guys can see what, when the Bible talks about something like thanksgiving, it talks holistically. And when it talks about, you know, um, how this should look in our life or how to think about our lives in, like, in this uh, ethical way as it pertains to being a thankful person, it talks about it from two angles. On the one angle on the bottom, it just says do it. Like, be thankful. Be a thankful person. And it invites us into seeing how sacred this is, right? Because it, it is, being thankful is a sacred thing because it is the will of God for your life. Like, if you've ever wondered what does God want for my day, like, or for this season in COVID or for my future, what's his will? This is a wonderful place of the Bible to start because it's explicit. It clearly says the will of God for your life is to be a thankful person, to thank God in Christ Jesus, to be thankful especially for the gospel, whether things are hard or, or great. It all, he also talks about prayer and about being joyful. Uh, I think that's the bread and this is the meat of the sandwich. I think around, around this verse you have prayerfulness, dependence, and also um, joy 
in, in the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants, all right? So we can, in one sense, look at that verse and say, okay, this is part of what God is, is asking. This is partly what it means to live a, a spirit-filled life, uh, to live a, a transformed life in Christ, is to be thankful in all circumstances. But in another sense, the Bible goes further than this, right? It, it says thankfulness is God's will for us in Christ. That clause, in Christ, is important. And then in, in the top verse, today's passage, it says grace leads us to, to thanksgiving. And maybe you can see here why this is so important. But, but this is important because if someone told you guys to simply be thankful without any spe- specifics attached to it, what would your next question be? Like if someone said, Eric, be thankful, or Nick, be thankful, what would, you, what would, what would the next question probably be? For what? Right? Be thankful, okay, great, but if there's no specifics attached to it, you would want to like add that yourself, right? And say, well, for what exactly? And the Bible helpfully does that in both of these places. It says, not just thankfulness, but thankfulness in Christ, right? Or a grace that leads to a welling up of thankfulness in the hearts of sinners who are being redeemed, right? Uh, like, it's, like it's an aroma being sent up to heaven as the Bible paints that picture elsewhere, like in the book of Revelation. And so, to flip that around then, and this is where Scripture is really helpful, thanklessness, to not be thankful then is a grace deficiency problem. The more we think we contribute to our salvation or to anything in life, uh, the more gold our jar is, the less clay our jar is, the less thankful we will be, right? It's just simple logic. It's simple theological math. The more God does, the more we thank. The less God does, or we perceive him to do, the less we'll thank, right? Because, the, because then we'll think the more that we do. And who thanks themselves for things? Maybe people do that, but it's kind of weird, right? Just like, oh, thank you, Chris. Well, you're welcome, you know? Like, that'd be really weird. You'd think you're insane if you talked to, talk to yourself like that. So the more we add ourselves into the equation, the less thankful we'll be. And this is why grace, which is the opposite of works, is, is producing thankfulness, right? If works was, and karma was guiding the universe, it would not lead to a welling up of thankfulness. It would lead to a welling up of ourselves, right? And, and a patting of ourselves on the back. Flattery, but not thankfulness. This is why thanksgiving is such a mark of salvation. Because the, the bedrock of thanksgiving is Jesus did everything for you. Jesus loves you more than you'll ever realize. He's given you way more than you can ever comprehend. That's the bedrock, right, uh, of the, the foundation of the building of thanksgiving. That's why it, it's possible, why it's so important, why it's sacred to be a thankful individual even when things are, are difficult. I'll also say this. I, I think this is why Paul says... Um, that it's okay if our outer self is wasting away. I'm going to talk more about this next week, so if you're wondering why isn't Chris talking more about that part of this passage, I'm going to delve deeper next week. But, but, but for here, for today, it, I think this is why Paul is saying it's okay our outer self's wasting away, which is to say our focus increasingly is taken off of us and our bodies and our hands and put more on the inner self which is not just to say a better version of ourselves, a spiritual side of ourselves. That's too platonic for the Bible. It is to say the inner self, the inner man, is Christ himself, who now lives within us, 
Like think of Galatians 2 where it says, we no longer live. We've died and, and we've been raised with Jesus. He's the one who lives within us. And so he's the producer of our good works and the producer of our love and, and our very breath. It's, it's him spiritually who lives now within us. So when our bodies waste away, that can be advantageous. It can be like, okay, now our, as our bodies are getting weaker and sick, we can then take that idea and apply it spiritually and say, we're also increasingly growing more in the knowledge of the gospel so that our, our eyes are being taken more off of what we do and more onto what Christ does. And that, yet, that again, is, is the mark of a mature believer to grow in that over and over and over again. All right, back to verses 8 and 9 from a different perspective, and this relates to thanksgiving. We'll come back to it. Paul again said, we are afflicted in every way. Isn't that just crazy? Every way? How how all-encompassing is that? We are afflicted in every way, and yet not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted heavily, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but we're still here. We're not destroyed, right? And, and one thing that, that we need to understand about this verse, especially considering that Paul thought of his sufferings as linked with Jesus's, is that the exception clauses for Paul were not accepted for Christ. The exception clauses here in verses 8 and 9 were not exceptions for Jesus Christ, meaning Paul was afflicted but not crushed. But Christ was afflicted and crushed, right? For you and me. Isaiah 53 says this straight up. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was, here it is, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All right, do you see? Like, the Bible is is not is, is choosing its words carefully here. This is an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus ahead of time. Christ fulfills it, and now spilling over into the New Testament era, Paul's talking about his life with careful terms. And at the end of the day, what do we have here? We have Paul not being crushed and Jesus being crushed. That's a straight-up gospel, right? Paul was not crushed, Jesus was. And so even like couched in this passage that we usually kind of think of as a heavy suffering passage for Paul, even within that, we have this idea that, well, Paul actually isn't suffering as much as Jesus did. No one can. And the point is to see that. His crushing, Jesus's, made it possible for us not to be like Paul. Do you see how the Bible informs this? We could go on. Paul was not driven to despair, but Jesus was when he sweat blood in Gethsemane hours before his arrest, and of course, when he suffered on the cross. Paul was persecuted, but not forsaken. But Jesus was forsaken for us when he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see how Paul is being lovingly spared? Do you see how you have been lovingly spared by a God who isn't demanding that you suffer for him, but saying, I will suffer for you. I'll take the brunt so the brunt will pass over you. You will, you will like live in the coattails or the wake of the boat of my suffering. You will, you will give off the aroma of it. And there's a purpose for that to tell my story, but it's not a one-to-one. 
you'll reflect it. But I am the enabler, right? And we, we must see the gospel in this. The classic principle of substitution. And then last here, Paul was struck down but not destroyed, but Jesus was destroyed. He died. He was the jar of clay in Jeremiah 19, which is another prophecy about Jesus who was dashed and broken because of of the sins of, of the people. All right, lots more to say about that, but here's what I want us to see again. Paul's bounce backs from his transient sufferings, his bounce backs from his afflictions are reminders of how through Jesus' suffering we've been spared. And it won't always feel like that, right? Our afflictions will feel extremely heavy, but the way Paul writes who suffered more than we have is instructive and necessary to understand in our sufferings that God is able to empathize with us because he not only suffered like we did, he suffered more than we did for our sins. Our light affliction is reminders of his heavy affliction. Or another way to say it would be, we have this treasure in a jar of clay, but when the Bible says that, not just meaning our weak bodies, but Christ's crucified body, who is the most unlikely of containers for treasure, not unlike a manger holding the, son, the infant son of God at the beginning of, of the first advent when Jesus was born into the world in, in human flesh and incarnated. But this is Christianity. We don't shy away from the used, scratched, commonplace Tupperware, but we see our Savior in it. We see beauty in it. We see our, we see our Savior, our King in it. And, and our hope in our gospel is stored up in the non-flashiness and commonplace or commonness of Jesus' bloodied body to show, again, to show that this all-surpassing power to reconcile sinners with God came from him. And, and not, not from us. So this is not the main part of this, but it, I think it does affect how you look at commonplace things. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, look around at yourselves. We're like the scratch Tupperware. We're like the jars of clay. We're not that flashy. And we're supposed to see a whisper of the cross in that, a whisper of our Savior, the principle of grace play out. But that might actually play out, you know, changing diapers and making dinners and you know mowing the lawn and doing something really not joy giving at work like it it actually does allow christians to look at the things of life the the commonplace the mundane and not discard them as though they're they're unworthy of our attention you know like um it's possible paul has a lens here for seeing something beautiful in the mundane it was actually the the very end of the series called the office you guys watch the series the office the sitcom ran for years but the very end when pam says and I, I did not write this down i meant to get it second service i said the first service too and i'm like i'm just winging this here i did not write this down but she says something like um at the very end her last monologue the last episode she says i think this is the whole purpose of why this thing was pretty great you know like why this um this documentary series about a failing paper paper company was beautiful why it was really terrible and kind of i hated this job and yet looking back we can see beauty in this uh and i think she's looking at her painting she did of the building you guys remember this i'm butchering this but it's it's way better than that but it's like oh my gosh that's what we're talking about it's exactly the way paul viewed the world is there's beauty in the mundane in 
everything because there is beauty in the ultimate jar of clay who is dashed on the cross for you and me. Scratched, used, abused, spit on, mocked for you and me because he loved us that, that much. And so just to summarize here, there's a lot going on in this passage, but four big things I'll just read pretty quick here. But this passage simultaneously, this is why I think it's so popular and looked to. It's so just unminable for all of its gold uh, in one fell swoop. But four big things. Eternal life is coming. And it's beyond comparison to the light and momentary affliction we're now facing as Christians. That is not a small thing. Basic Christianity, those of you who are Christians probably knew that coming in, but still, we have to remember this. Eternal perspectives matter, and a day is coming when all of our tears will be wiped away, and the future glory is heavy compared to the lightness of what we're going through now. Second, our weakness and the wasting away of our outer selves magnifies God's grace and love all the more. That was a big piece of today. Third, God is making the world a more thankful place. He's doing this through the church. He's doing this through the gospel. Christianity produces thanksgiving more than any other religion because other religions magnify the self. They glorify the works of our hands. They say, climb the ladder, and God will reward you for your strength, right? But Christianity is the complete opposite, and so therefore, it makes us more thankful. But here's the thing. The channel, though, for all these first three things is the dashed jar of Christ's body who is given over to be forsaken, to despair, to be crushed and destroyed in our place because he loved you and me that much. Isn't that amazing? And so this passage says things like, look to the unseen hands of God, not to the seen hands of your body for what defines you. Not to what you do with your hands, but to the unseen hands of God, how he worked through the Spirit to change your heart and to make you softened towards his death and resurrection, to believe and trust in it. Let the failure of your body, the weakness, point you to where the true power lies, which is in Christ forever and ever and ever, not ourselves, and then, of course, to be tirelessly thankful for how much he's given you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage uh, today that uh, reminds us of so much. Um, God, forgive me and all of us of our thankless hearts. And we invite the Spirit uh, to produce and to just continue to work on the bedrock and the foundation of the gospel in our life so that we will have, uh, kind of in that hierarchy of needs way, uh, we will see the, the greatest of need, which is dealing with death and, and forgiveness of sins and seeing God again someday that has been decidedly taken care of through Jesus. And so all other needs are, um, even though they might feel heavy and they're important, they're not as important eternally. And so God, well up within us, thanksgiving, just cause that spirit to be part of who we are. May people know us as a church for being thankful. They'd almost be just, you know, uh, just too much sometimes uh, because of how much you've, d- you've done that in our, in our hearts and lives. Um, through the gospel. And then, God, again, thank you that you are the jar of clay, ultimately, who was dashed. You were put to despair. You were crushed, and you were forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.